please turn with me to the book of Esther chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table. And uh, if, you, uh, if you are a, a device or a tablet user, our, our translation that we use is the English Standard Version, the ESV. So yeah, so flip open there. Today marks uh, our second to last Sunday in the book of Esther in our series, Faith Among the Faithless. Uh, next week, we're going to be coupling chapters 9 and 10, uh, and we'll be wrapping up this series, this book of Esther. And then the following week is Palm Sunday, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' triumphal entry. And then it is Easter, so guys, get your pastel shirts ready, uh, iron them up, have them, have them on hand. <laughs> no. Uh, if you are uh, just just joining us in this series, there's a couple of key things that you need to be aware of about the story of Esther. So I'm going to go quick. All right. This is a true story. The events in this book really happened 450 years before the birth of Christ in the Persian capital, Susa, which is modern day Iran. Now, in this story, there are four main characters. We have King Xerxes. In this story, he's referred to by his Persian name, Ahasuerus. Now, at the time of the events of this story, he is the greatest superpower leading the greatest empire the world has ever known. He thought he was a god, and he wanted everyone else to think that too. Second main character we have is Esther. She's a Jew. She's one of God's covenant people. But until last week in chapter 7, she hasn't wanted anyone to know that. She's kept her Jewish identity secret. And it's because of her beauty and because of, 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 of a willingness to compromise some of her Jewish convictions, Esther is chosen as queen to King Ahasuerus. And then, of course, we have Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's older cousin and father figure. He, too, is a Jew, and he, too, has kept that a secret for the majority of this story. He's one of the king's employees. And as of chapter 6, he has just been honored for saving the king from an assassination plot. And then lastly, we have the king's right-hand man, Haman. Haman is also not a native Persian. In fact, he comes from a long line of Jewish-hating people known as the Agagites. And when Haman notices that Mordecai doesn't give him the proper respect, uh, Haman does some digging, he does some research, and he discovers that Mordecai is a Jew. And because Haman is a Jewish-hating Agagite with a lot of power, he convinces the king to write a decree that will put to death 500-plus thousand Jews living in Persia. Men and women and children. And all of this has been decreed that it will take place on the 13th day of Adar, which is the last month of the year. Last week we saw Haman. He built this 75-foot pole called a gallows in his yard, which he planned to impale Mordecai with. And because apparently that's what you do when you're a Jewish-hating Agagite who can't wait until the death day on the 13th day of the last month. He, he grew impatient. He wanted to see Mordecai dead. And we saw last week Haman's plan failed when Queen Esther finally revealed to the king that she is in fact a Jew. And the king was made aware of just how much this decree of Haman's was going to affect him. His, uh, 
Ahasuerus' own wife was going to die because of this decree. So we ended chapter 7 last week with Haman being impaled to death in his own yard on the very pole he had constructed from Mordecai. It was a radical reversal, remember? And that radical reversal continues into chapter 8. And so if you have your Bibles open, would you follow along as I read starting in verse 1? On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke to the, spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. 
And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, this word inspired by your most Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take and teach and apply to our hearts that we would be transformed by it in heart and mind and spirit, Lord, that we would be transformed into uh, the likeness of Christ with this truth, Lord. Edify us as we glorify you in diving in. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Was, uh, these passages are long, aren't they? And I almost need a, well, I have a drink here, so I'll do that. When I was, uh, when I was in seventh grade, I decided to join the football team at school. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> seventh grade was already shaping up to be a complete nightmare, so I thought, why not try a sport I have never played before? Uh, I signed up late. So all that they had left were these extra large lineman shoulder pads, and they, it fit like a hula hoop around me. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. Every practice, I, I, I came to understand very quickly, all practice long, it was tackling. It was hitting. I would take hit after hit after hit. I'm pretty sure they like slid the tackling dummies aside, and they were like, Lawson, get out here. And they just put me there just to be tackled. I never got any game time. I just was tackled all the time, hit after hit. I'd barely catch my breath, and then I'd take another hit and another. Uh, I didn't play football again, uh, but it, it, it really, in many ways, became a metaphor for not only my seventh grade year of taking hits, but really a, a very applicable metaphor for life on earth. Because does it not feel... Uh, the longer we are here and, and alive, does it not feel that life is just often a cycle of, of hits after hit after hit? We, we catch our breath long enough to think that, well, the bout of sickness has passed. The finances have all leveled out. The job tension has lessened. We catch our breath long enough to think, okay, finally, a season that isn't an all-out struggle, a season of ease, finally, and then what, what comes? Another hit, another bout of sickness, another fractured relationship, another crisis at work. I know for me and my family, 2018 was a year of wondering what is happening what is going on? Sickness and infections and broken bones and surgeries and family crises, panic attacks. When are we going to catch a break is what my wife and I would ask at every shared meal. You've had these years. I know you've had, I, I, you've had these weeks, these months. We all have. There is much heartache and, and, and much looming uncertainty. And this is exactly what Esther and Mordecai and the Jews are facing in Esther chapter 8. And for the remainder of our time, I want to draw our attention to three observations. If you're a note taker, here are my three points. Three things we see in this passage. Number one, a short-lived relief. It's a relief that is very short-lived. 
Number two, a godly use of privilege. And number three, an incomplete rescue. And so we'll look at number one, a short-lived relief. If you were here last week, you know this. Haman the Agagite is dead. The mastermind behind the destruction of the Jews is hanging on a 75-foot gallows in his own yard. We see in verses 1 and 2 of our passage that Haman's house is repossessed by the king, who in turn gives it to Esther, who in turn gives it to Mordecai, who the king now knows to be Esther's older cousin. It's all out in the open now. Mordecai is, is promoted to second in command over the Persian Empire. He is fitted with the king's signet ring, which means Mordecai now has power of attorney, royal power of attorney. Things are turning around. And you might say that, that Mordecai and Esther are finally able to catch their breath. They've overcome the hurdle of, of being separated. Remember when, when Esther was removed and sent to the king's harem and they had to communicate through, through, through eunuchs. They've overcome that separation. They've overcome the hurdle of revealing their ethnicity. They've overcome the hurdle of, of Haman's gallows. And then there's this huge promotion that we see in our passage. But their moment of relief is super short-lived. Because just as they're able to stand up and brush themselves off, there comes another hit. Haman's decree to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews has likely already reached all 127 provinces of the empire. This would have been a three-month process. It would take three months from the signing of a decree to it reaching all of the provinces. It's been that long now. The word is out Death day is on the 13th day of Adar. And we learned in chapter 1 that such a decree, the law of the Medes and the Persians, could not be repealed or amended. In other words, Haman might be dead in chapter 8, but just like a rattlesnake, his venom is still potent. Death is on the horizon. Another hit has come to Esther and Mordecai. Now look, I don't want to make this unnecessarily depressing this morning. But here is the thing that we need to see. On this side of the Garden of Eden, we are not going to catch our breath. There will be seasons of ease that you and I experience, yes. There will be seasons of relief. These things, by God's miraculous mercy, will come. But we need to understand that these seasons are not normative. This side of the Garden of Eden. We live in a broken world, filled with broken people. And guess what? We made it that way. The moment we first disobeyed our creator, God, we cast our vote. We punched our ballot and we put it in. Our disobedience has twisted creation out of alignment. And where there was once wholeness and fullness and goodness and glory, there is now death and disease and decay and destruction. These are the wages of sin. 
Now, on account of these wages and on account of sin, Jesus did come to die. He became sin and he died so that sinners might be forgiven and live. That is really good news. He crushed the head of the serpent. Satan was defeated at the cross. But like Haman, his venom is still potent. Still sowing chaos. Still sowing confusion and violence until... Jesus returns. This is why Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us disciples many generations later. He tells us in John 16, you guys, that in this world, we will have trouble. We are to expect it. Because like Haman's decree, Satan's poison has spread throughout the entire kingdom. In Ephesians 2, it said, Paul writes that it's in the air, this, the, the enemy's poison. And so when you and I wake up in the morning expecting that practice is going to go differently, expecting not to take hits, right? We're thinking, oh man, we've Jump that hurdle. Finally, we're in a season of ease. If we are expecting this long-term relief, we are setting ourselves up for discouragement and despair. And, and, and Peter, who writes first and second Peter, you know, the, the, the Jews in the dispersion are asking this very question that we often ask. Why are these bad things happening to me? Why is it so difficult? And, and many churches have started pointing the finger and they chalk it up to a lack of faith. You're suffering because of a lack of faith. Look. I don't know if the pastors of those churches have ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but look at Jesus' life. I mean, throughout Jesus' entire life, he never sheds the manger motif. There is a theme that courses throughout his life. The God of all creation is born in a feeding trough because there was no place for him. He had to flee Herod. His parents had to take, he was, his life was threatened from the get-go. He was raised a despised Nazarene. The term of the day was nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nothing. So think about the, the town uh, that you, you, you least aspire to live in. The town, nothing good comes from that town. That was Jesus' town. He was baptized by, by his co- uh, uh, this recluse of a cousin who, who eats bugs. Jesus was despised throughout all of his life. He was rejected. He was homeless. He was acquainted with grief. He was mocked, beaten, and crucified. And he didn't even have the money to buy his own grave. When, when I consider this, And then I consider my own life. I have to agree with Charles Spurgeon. I am doing way better than I deserve. Jesus says in this world. Now, especially if you're a Christian. You will have trouble. But he doesn't leave it there. 
And we're going to revisit this at the end, but he says, take heart, because even though you will have trouble, take heart, for behold, I have overcome the world in which you will experience some trouble. And Paul writes that what we experience here, the troubles that we go through here, will not even be worth comparing to the glory that will soon be unleashed. But if I kept going to football practice every day thinking I wasn't going to get hit, do you see how quickly I can start thinking, there is, there's something wrong with me. I, I, I am so, I am despairing of, I, I am so discouraged. You see, the body of Christ is to anticipate the shortness of relief. Now, we will get more encouraging, so hang tight with me. Let's look at number two, a godly use of privilege. Okay, so the promotion that Mordecai receives, this promotion is incredible. Imagine a White House tour guide being promoted to vice president like that. I'm not kidding. It was a crazy promotion. And King Ahasuerus is really quick to give out power, which is a sermon series. In it. This guy is so unwise. But he happens to get... A pretty good dude in Mordecai who has a given a good track record of being loyal to him. So now Esther and Mordecai, they're not only reunited, but they're reunited in positions of great privilege and influence. Now, tremendous privilege and influence can so often be kryptonite in the hands of sinful men and women, but we don't see it go that way. We get a sense from verse 6 that given Esther and Mordecai's royal privilege, they might likely be kept safe from the annihilation of the Jews. Listen to Esther's words. She says, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? This, this wording kind of gives the impression that the annihilation of the Jews will be an event that Esther may in fact witness from a distance, from within the safety of the palace. She is the king's favorite wife. She and Mordecai are in the position that most people work their whole lives for. Especially here in America, we clamor for privilege. We clamor for the safety and the armor that privilege affords us. We clamor to build the tall fences around our brick houses with security cameras and alarms. We spend a lot of a lot of money making sure that destruction is something we witness from a distance on our TVs from within the safety of our own palaces. Do we not? During the recent shutdown, most Government employees went to went to work for no pay except for those who were at the very top. Now, I don't mean this as a political statement. What I simply mean is an observation. This is why so many of us work hard to get to the very top of the ladder so that we can get above the mess that exists at the ground level. Whatever profession you're in, 
whether a student or, you know, again, whatever profession, we, we do this. But what I love about Esther chapter 8 is we see an entirely different use of privilege coming from Esther and Mordecai. It is a godly use of privilege. Listen to the wording of verse 6 again. Esther says, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Do you hear the ownership in her language? It seems that somehow, by God's grace, the very people with whom and from whom Esther had hidden her identity, she is now identifying with. This is a crucial moment in in chapter 8. It's it's crucial for the heart of, of mission, of using our privilege in a godly manner. Friends, if we ever hope to use our God-given privilege to help those in need, we had better start identifying with them. And what I mean by this is the homeless, the prostitute, the criminal, the addict, the refugee, the outcast, the impoverished. Do we have a mutual identifying with these people? Do we realize these people are no less dignified reflections of the image of God than you and I, that in fact they are our brothers and sisters and fellow humans? It's only when we begin to identify with the needy that we will truly love them and serve them and fight for them as Jesus would have us do. And this is exactly what we see Esther and Mordecai do. In verse 3, from within the safety of the royal palace, in all of her royal garb, Esther falls to the feet of the king with tears flowing down her face, and she pleads for his help in rescuing the Jews. If it please the king, verse 5, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, do you hear this respectful language? Look, King Ahasuerus is still a maniac. And Esther knows that he could care less if the Jews are exterminated. And so she is basing her request to him on his love for her. She is his favorite wife. And so she says this, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now, a Persian decree could not be revoked. And a lot of scholars think it couldn't be revoked because of simply how long it took to make an amendment. It took three months to make an amendment. And so it was honestly clearer and quicker to write a brand new decree and send it out to uh, work against the previous decree, which is essentially what we see. In verse 7, uh, Ahasuerus is like, okay, 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 Esther. I mean, look, I've given you and Mordecai everything that belonged to Haman. Oh, and also, I killed Haman for you. So sure, do as you wish concerning the Jews. And right away in verses 9 through 14, we see Mordecai dictating a brand new decree to the king's scribes. 
A king that would be delivered by the fastest horses throughout all 127 provinces, stating that on the 13th day of Adar, all the Jews were allowed to gather together within their provinces to defend themselves from any of Haman's attackers, whether man or woman or child. Now, coming from God's people, that seems at first glance harsh. And it kind of conjures up this idea that we see throughout the Old Testament, this concept of holy war. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it, it does need bearing out that at times in the Old Testament, such as what we see right here, holy war was sanctioned by God. We see this the night of the Passover. We see this at the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Canaanites. These were dark moments in Old Testament history. One writer puts it this way. In all of these cases of holy war, however, the people were not destroyed because they happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, but because they were sinners who were steadfastly opposed to God. Now, this needs to be said because I fear that especially in the American church, we take passages that I've just read about, you know, uh, Mordecai's decree that, that, that we can defend ourselves from just about, you know, man, woman, and child. It needs to be said that if you're starting to feel this conjuring of just preemptive violence against your enemies, you need to keep reading into the Old Testament. We need to remember that any of the men and women and children who will end up opposing the Jews on the 13th day of Adar under the order of Haman, they're not just attacking God's people, they're attacking God himself. That's how the Lord sees this. So now kind of back to the point. Thank you for entertaining a brief commercial. Because of God's grace, Esther and Mordecai have begun to identify with the Jews. They don't even flirt with the temptation to hide behind their privilege, to hide behind the stone walls of the palace. They spring to action. They get to work. And it made me think this, this week as I've been preparing, oh Lord, if I would only see this about myself. If I would only recognize that my position and my privilege is something that has been given to me as leverage for the good of others. How about you? What position has God placed you in at work or at school or in your home or in the community? What and where has God placed you? What privilege has he given you? That is a fantastic opportunity to use it in godliness, to give a voice to the voiceless, to give hope to the marginalized and the hopeless. So I have some praise reports because I see this everywhere happening in Substance Church. I see this happening with Tony Schmidt using her privilege to rescue unborn babies. We're doing a fundraiser. Grab one of these in the cafe and fill it with money. Tony is using this to save the unborn. 
Tom and Emily Benikos, they use their privilege to give rides to and from church. Ron and Jan Maxwell, they use their privilege to support children in third world countries. Matt and Jody Figueroa use their privilege to benefit the foster system here in Wayne County. Will Tarakis has used his privilege to encourage other students. Hallelujah. Look at what is happening in our church among our people. Does it start to get the engine revving? Wait a minute. What privilege have I been given and how can I employ it in a godly manner for ministering to those around me? We have so many privileged people in this congregation. I mean, compared to someone else in the world, every one of us is privileged. Every single one of us. So who is God calling you to identify with? To use the same language as Esther. We're not going to let the destruction of my people go down on my watch. Take ownership of a people, of a nation, prayerfully, giving. Who is God calling you to speak for? I have to ask this of myself. Who has he given me a voice to represent, to give a voice to the voiceless? And we have to see that at the very center of our faith, at the very center of our faith, is a man of privilege who lowered himself to be identified with the lowly. Look and think about Jesus for a second. Talk about splendor and pomp. Seated on the heavenly throne amidst the very radiance of the Godhead. He was surrounded and is surrounded on every side by an army of worshiping angels. Now we're talking about someone who had the right to hide behind his privilege. But no, we have the incarnation because Christ identified with us. Hebrews 2 says that he became like us in every respect so that he might fully plead our case to the Father. This is infinitely more than can be said about King Ahasuerus, who, number three, offers an incomplete rescue at best. If nothing else, Esther chapter 8 serves as a reminder of the ultimate insufficiency of earthly saviors, quote-unquote. When it comes to a bad guy like Haman... Ahasuerus can handle it. We've seen that. But when it comes to rescuing the Jewish people from the much greater threat of annihilation, Ahasuerus is completely powerless. Do you see this? In his own kingdom, his hands are tied. In his own kingdom, he is incapable of repealing Haman's decree. All Ahasuerus can do in Esther chapter 8 is permit Mordecai to write an additional decree allowing the Jews to defend themselves against attackers. This is what an earthly savior, a functional savior does. A functional savior is anyone or anything besides Christ that we look to for ultimate safety and satisfaction. My functional savior could be the president of the United States. 
If I could just get this man or this woman into office, then things would be okay. Who hasn't heard that said before? Your functional savior could be your spouse. It could be your boss. It could be your pastor. God forbid. Your doctor. If you were a Jew living in Persia in mid-4th century B.C., it could have been a hazardous. A functional savior is anything or anyone we look to besides Christ for ultimate safety and satisfaction. Now, do you want to know how to identify a functional savior in your life? Be careful for, for inviting this. You can fill in the blank. Fill in this blank. If blank were to be taken from me, my life would unravel. If I were to lose blank, my life would fall apart. Or, if I never find a blank, if I never achieve blank, if I never experience blank, my life will essentially be meaningless. Each One of us has something that we can fill in those blanks with. And we need to understand this morning that in the same way Ahasuerus is incapable of completely rescuing the Jews, our functional saviors are completely incapable of giving us the safety and uh, the satisfaction that we crave. Our functional saviors might be able to take care of the Hamans in our lives for a season, but they are powerless to save us To the uttermost. And when we finally realize that. And when we're faced with the pain. Of a failed functional savior. When our spouse fails us. When our pastor fails us. When our doctor fails us. And then we're left to defend ourselves. It gives rise to the self-help movement. In our hearts. Which we inherited from our first parents. Adam and Eve. That self-help movement is ready to spring into action at any moment, and then we become our own functional saviors, do we not? Well, if he or she can't fulfill me, if he or she can't save me, I'll do it myself. I will rise up. I will defend myself. This is really attractive to the world. I mean, it's the look at all of the, the self-help top bestsellers. Look at the conferences that so many of us attend. This is attractive to the world. In fact, look at verse 17. Just look at all of the Persians who come out of the woodwork and they start joining rank with the Jews. Look, there's something a little frightening about a bunch of people who all of a sudden get confident to defend themselves. And our flesh has this natural attraction to mottos like, don't tread on me. We have this natural attraction. Again, I'm not trying to get political. And yet, functional savior after functional savior, Persian king after Persian king after Persian king, God's people see that the hits keep coming. And we need someone who will defend us with a capital D even defend us from ourselves. We need someone who will not leave us to fight for ourselves. Ahasuerus allows this decree to be written, and he says, it's up to you. Fight for yourselves. Defend yourselves. We need someone to provide a better rescue than that. We need someone who will save us to the 
uttermost. And consequently, Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Theologian John Owen explains Hebrews 7.25 this way. Saving us to the uttermost means that Christ will not bring about part of our salvation and leave what remains to us or to others. Whatever belongs to our entire complete salvation, Jesus is able to effect it. From regeneration to conversion to justification to sanctification to glorification, Jesus, 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 Jesus will finish what he started in you. The Lord will sustain you to the end, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues in 1 Thessalonians 5. God himself will sanctify you completely. Listen to this language. He will keep you blameless till the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is faithful. He will surely do it. Unlike Ahasuerus, Jesus promises to sustain his people through all of the hits of life, as short of a relief as it often feels. He will hold us fast. He promises to empower and to use use us in our privilege. As the hits are coming, he's put us in positions. I don't know why I've been placed here, but guess what? I have the ability, because of the Spirit in me, to use my privilege for godliness to further the kingdom. And so do you. Unlike Ahasuerus, Jesus promises us a better rescue. I pray that tomorrow... Or even this afternoon, as we face another hit, or even if right now you're sitting here and and the pain, the sting of, of a hit that you're facing is still throbbing through your body, I pray that by God's gracious Holy Spirit, that he would sustain you, that he would remind you of the length that he went. He who knew no sin who had no reason outside of his own mercy to come down into our lowliness. He humbled himself. He subjected himself to our state. He became our sin. He died as a sinner on a cross, handling the righteous retribution of the wrath of God on behalf of his people. Buried and risen, he now says, look, You are going to have trial in this world until I return, until the fullness of my kingdom comes to consummate. But I have overcome the world and I am walking with you. I will finish what I've started. I will hold you fast. I pray, I pray, I pray that we would know that as we face the next hit. Would you pray with me right now?
I praise you, Jesus Christ in heaven, that you are a remarkably better king than Ahasuerus. And I know that the ancient Jews who had this text, I know, Lord, that your remnant, your people, they were calling out for a better king with a better savior and a better rescue because earthly functional saviors, including ourselves, Lord, we fail. So, Lord, give us strength and confidence and peace in knowing that what we face today is not unique to us. It's not necessarily a lack of faith. What it is, Lord, is that we, on this side of Eden, are facing the sting, the the poison that's left behind from the fall. Lord, strengthen us to endure it, walk with us, hold us fast. Help us to cling to the good news of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.